Okay, hi everybody. My name is Peter Fankhauser and I'm the program director at Amplify Arts. Um, and today we're talking to musician, artist, and environmental planner Ren Kirkhope about some of the connections between ecologically reproductive labor, environmental planning, and building reciprocal relationships with local ecosystems. Um, Ren, we're really happy to have you here and thank you so much for making time to share your thoughts and perspectives and experiences with us. Um, would you mind telling folks a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I uh, use she, her, they, them pronouns, and um, I work in the long range planning of the Omaha, uh, I work in the long range planning section of the city of Omaha planning department, and I focus primarily on environmental planning. Um, but then when I'm not there, I, uh, make music under the name Bowling by Myself, and then I also create urban, geograph urban geography YouTube videos uh, on my channel, uh, my YouTube channel, City Chat, um, and I just had uh, my first video go up. Uh, it's a profile of the Brunswick, Georgia metro area, um, and then I'm also a member of the 2020 Alternate Currents Working Group. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for the working group plug also. Um, so this year we've been talking a lot about ecological justice and environmental justice. Um, in fact, we've dedicated um, the entire year to those discussions. And I wondered here, here uh, during our interview now if you could talk a little bit about ecologically reproductive care work. Um, what does that term encompass? How does it manifest in your work and what role, if any, does it play in municipal environmental planning? Yeah, so um, I guess, as I understand uh, ecologically reproductive care work, um, it's labor that by and large only exists like after a different human intervention has occurred. Um, so it's labor that seemingly only occurs in environments that humans or if we want to be more specific about uh, our economy and how it functions, uh, capital um, have identified as having value. So yeah, any um, environments that humans or capital have identified as having value, basically. Um, and I don't know, I mean, nobody's really trying to do care work on the ocean floor, I guess, because it's been impacted by humans, but it's um there doesn't seem to be any extractive value there at least uh one that people have, have deemed worthy of uh investing in so as far as uh care work goes um in city planning um i don't know that there's a lot of it that you do day to day um because when i think of care work uh, I think of work happening more after the fact of human intervention, um, whereas a lot of what I do and a lot of what happens in planning is more the enforcement of regulations that preemptively mitigate the harm development might cause to undeveloped land. Um, the term undeveloped land is a little, I don't know if it's the best term to use there, but I say that rather than natural land just because most of the new land that gets developed is um, agricultural land rather than like just untouched, you know, forests or prairie. Um, so like as an example, there are regulations that we have in place 
case that require the planting of new trees if a significant enough amount of canopy of existing tree canopy is removed. Um, so it's sort of an attempt at recreating the ecosystem services that are lost as a result of development. Um, in general, the kind of municipal environmental work you'll see depends on where you are, but um, when I was an undergrad, we talked a lot about how the overarching approach to the environment by governments is one of management more than anything else. And I think that's a, a mentality or a framework that um, doesn't jive well with the concept of care work. Um, so governments tend to be a lot more interested in trying to control the environment in order to protect public and private assets as well as people from natural disasters. Um, so, uh, and I guess I want to be clear, I'm not making this comment as, uh, as a critique, but just an example, um, of the framework that gets used. Um, so if you look at the most recent, um, Omaha Capital Improvement Program, which a capital improvement program is a city's plan, um, that outlines how that city is going to allocate funds towards capital projects over the next X number of years. So in Omaha's case, we do it, we do one, a new one every year, but it looks out five years uh, in advance. And so um, a clear plurality, if not an outright majority of funds are earmarked for uh, quote unquote environmental projects. But if you look at what that means, um, you'll see that most of those funds are going towards programs related to sewer system repair and maintenance, water quality facilities, flood control measures, things like that. Um, there are programs in there as well um, that we could understand as care work, like stream restoration. Um, but most of the funding is going towards, uh, there's infrastructure in place, or ensuring there's infrastructure in place uh, to protect the built environment and people from natural hazards. Uh, or make use of the ecosystem services like drinking water that the environment provides. So, um, I mean, and, and it's understandable why this framework exists in local government. Um, you know, I don't want to come across uh, in this interview as like um, harsh, but uh, in, in my outlook, I guess. Um, it's, it's the framework that exists. Um, that said, I personally believe that uh, care work can and should play a larger role in the work that government does. Um, the issue is that when we talk about that sort of work, it sort of naturally begets a conversation about externalized costs and the labor exploitation that's inherent to capitalism. Um, I think any way you slice it, most cities don't fully grapple with the true environmental cost of development. Um, so when a new large lot subdivision uh, or suburban neighborhood is built, there's no calculation of the expected emissions increase associated with it or an expectation of the developer or the city will off those emissions, offset those emissions um, outside of a couple of environmental zoning districts in Omaha and the northeast part of the city, um, there's not anything in, you know, that really prompts uh, anybody in the development process to seriously consider uh, things like wildlife corridors uh, that might be obstructed by development. 
Um, hydrology is another big thing um, in development. Uh, it's considered, but the bottom line is that if you're developing land, you're expected to keep your stormwater on site, keep it from running off site. Um, and something that I wonder about a lot is, you know, through development, how has the watershed changed? Um, not just locally, but even downstream. Um, what are the impacts of, uh, you know, the extent to which we've changed uh, the flow of water? Um, just with our own, within our own little area here. So um, these are issues that like I've talked about with people who work uh, in government like around the country, but um, having those conversations and deciding what to do about these issues, again, if it gets a conversation about who bears the cost of development, and I don't know that um, capital or, um, yeah, I don't know that capital wants to have that conversation unless it's entirely on their terms, uh, which is how we wind up with uh, more performative care work that serves to legitimize um, the action of capital without seriously grappling with the harm being done. Um, so I guess to circle back to this question of care work and that long meandering answer, um, I think care work has, uh, can serve multiple functions depending on who's doing it and who uh, who wants it to be done. It can be anything from performative work, uh, sort of PR work almost, um, to, uh, which, I mean, you can argue that that's not even care work to begin with, uh, but then there's a veneer of it to uh, a, a much more, a much deeper consideration for the needs of an ecosystem on its own terms. And, uh, I think there's absolutely room for that sort of work uh, in planning and government work in general. I feel like that's a really good segue into talking a little bit about um, um, Elizabeth Meyer, who's a landscape architect, some of her evaluation and consideration around culture um, um, and, and man-made hierarchies. Um, she, so there's a quote, I'm going to read a quote that comes from one of her books. She says, the continuation of the culture nature and man nature hierarchies by designers um, or planners when they describe the theoretical and formal attributes of their work perpetuate the separation of human life from other forms of life, vegetal and animal. This separation places people outside the ecosystems of which they are a part and reinforces a land ethic of either control or ownership instead of partnership and interrelationship. So can you talk a little bit about RIN, um, about some planning and design strategies that use uh, a similar feminist critique of contemporary sustainability discourse to realign our relationship with um, ecosystems as one of reciprocity rather than domination, um, like an ecosystem services approach to planning, for example? Yeah, so um, I definitely agree with Meyer's thoughts about like transitional or traditional zoning and planning logic. Um, zoning in general, like at its core, is an attempt to define and spatially organize everything that happens in the community. And in specific contexts, the framework, like that framework is changing and we're starting to view urban areas 
as continuums more. Uh, so for example, like in more communities, mixed use zoning uh, and form-based zoning codes are being adopted, um, which those sorts of zoning codes do view the built environment as a sort of continuum. So a mixed use zoning code looks at uh, the use uh, of a site and allows a lot more leeway in uh, what uses can occur there. So we're not segregating uses as often or as much. So, uh, you know, you have commercial retail on the ground floor of a building and then uh, apartments on top of it. You know, that's the most common example of mixed use development uh, that we think of. And then form-based codes uh, are interesting and not nearly used as often, I don't think, but um, it looks more, and kind of what it sounds like, the form of the building almost. Um, rather than the use. Um, so again, that allows for a lot more leeway in terms of what's happening. Uh, that said, when it comes to viewing ourselves as human being, beings and um, our communities that we live in as continuous with the broader ecosystem, I think we have a lot uh, of work to do, a long way to go um, within the planning field. Um, so I think there is a growing recognition of ecosystem services in planning, um, but you can have that conversation in a few different ways. Um, I think right now we're still having it in the sense of like, these are services that we can take advantage of rather than services that we should be reciprocating for. So like, um, you know, what can we give back to uh, a stream, you know, for giving us clean drinking water, right? It's, it, we're remote, we're just focusing on the service that can be provided to us uh, at this point. So like a, a really good example of that is the US Forest Service has a really interesting tool um, or really a whole slate of tools available where you can calculate the monetary value of ecosystem services uh, provided by trees and tree canopy. Um, so if your goal is to communicate sort of within a capitalist um, sort of patriarchal framework that values domination of land and control uh, rather than reciprocity, um, then this can be really useful because you can say we are getting X million of dollars of value out of our uh, out of our tree canopy, and that's how we justify saving it. Um, so, and 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 the monetary value, uh, you know, trees the way it gets calculated is um, everything from uh, you know decreased hospital uh, and medical bills um, from lower air pollution uh, to carbon sequestration. And these are all really valuable services, but it's done in the context of thinking about trees as infrastructure, uh, thinking about the ecosystem as infrastructure, uh, as something that is uh, a tool for us. And um, I, I don't see that. Uh, so you can accept a service, but still not reciprocate on that. Um, 
So I don't have a specific vision for what urban planning um, might look like if we were to view humans as interconnected with non-human environments. But I do think um, feminist and queer planning scholars uh, definitely offer uh, really excellent recommendations and thoughts. Um, so, and then combined with that, um, I think a more democratized planning process would work against the existing framework of uh, sort of this patriarchal notion that we have of domination and control um, and privatization. Um, something that I think about fairly often is that it's kind of concerning to me um, how little say we might often have over uh, the details of what happens right next to us, you know, right next door. Um, and I'm not saying that like planning as practice in the United States is anti-democratic. Um, and like, I like a lot of planners like myself, like we make an earnest effort to engage communities and like seek feedback. But at a certain point, uh, you still run into the issue of private ownership and whoever owns a specific piece of property having um, an outsized amount of influence. So my vision, like I tend to view everybody as a planner. Like I went to school for it, that's my job title. But if you are interacting with your community in any way, uh, if you're making decisions about, you know, what kind of tree you wanna plant in your front yard, um, that is a planning decision. Like we're all, and, and we all play a role in the overall fabric of our community and we all contribute to it, contribute to it in ways that are both passive and active. And so I think there's a lot more room to be able to recognize the role that just we as people play uh, in creating value in our communities uh, and that in turn uh, makes us all more, I suppose, entitled to having more influence um, in, in, uh, in, in planning and development processes, uh, which that sort of outlook on things uh, on, on planning and, and development might butt up against the idea of private property because all of a sudden you're saying like, well, the person who has the title to a piece of land doesn't get nearly as much control in that sort of uh, system. So, but, but I think if we want to reckon with uh, the reality of like the value that every single individual brings to a community and what that entitles them to as a member of that community, uh, I don't think the strict sort of private property uh, domination of land mentality uh, allows for that. And so then we can, you know, that's sort of a very human-centric way of, of thinking about democratization. And I think, well, in future questions, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but um, democracy in the context of including the whole, the broader ecosystem as well um, is something that I think we're very much capable of doing and is uh, necessary if we want to recognize the 
services that uh, the ecosystem offers to us. So. Right. I yeah, I think that's a really important point to pick up on. Um, it makes me think a little bit about um, Julia Watson, who's a lecturer in urban design at Harvard and Columbia universities and the way she frames this, this idea of human nature complex versus human nature divide as um, a, a symbiosis. She uses symbiosis, that term a lot in her writing. Um, she suggests replacing survival of the fittest with survival of the most symbiotic. So um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what symbiosis looks like in municipal environmental planning and maybe some examples of how symbiosis or um, ecological reciprocity could be foregrounded in policy. Yeah, um, so one thing that I'm like really excited about and want to keep looking into more that's just like I think just starting to take hold in some places um, is this idea of community benefit agreements. Um, I think this is a really interesting uh, policy that can be a gateway toward a more holistic symbiotic form of planning. Um, so <laughs> the basic idea of a community benefit agreement is it's self-explanatory. It's the idea that a community ought to benefit from uh, the things that occur within it. So if you have a developer coming into a neighborhood and you know building a new commercial structure or something, a community benefit agreement might say like you need to employ X percentage of people uh, from the neighborhood uh, in this place. Um, or there are other, uh, you know, basically what, what the community recognizes as needs that it needs met uh, or harms that it wants to be avoided as a result of something, uh, as a result of the development. A community benefit agreement is the opportunity to actually like give that some legal oomph. So it, it goes beyond, um, you know, making a comment at the city council meeting and it's a formal agreement. Um, and they're starting to get used. And I think initially the context for them is as a hedge against gentrification, which is really important. Um, but if you have advocates for the environment or an ecosystem um, at the table, then there's an opportunity to um, advance this idea of uh, reciprocal relationship between development and the environment. And I think from the community development agreements, if you can start having more of those as sort of these examples, then if you have enough of those, then you can sort of develop a new framework out of them. Um, it's this, it's the idea of sort of starting small and then expanding outward from there. And then if we have enough of those good examples, then we could perhaps alter overall policy um, just based on those examples. Um, along with that, and sort of circling back to this idea of um, a more democratized planning process, um, I think sometimes about interspecies communication as an environmental planner. Um, so we know that animals and plants communicate uh, just like we do, but uh, our channels of communication aren't really designed to hear them. Like a shrub can't come into a city council meeting and make a comment. 
Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't have something to say um, because the ecosystem does say things all the time. Uh, it's just a matter of like making an effort to listen. So as an example, like if you look at the surface of a pond and it's completely covered in blue green, blue green algae blooms, we can interpret that as the pond saying, your agricultural and urban runoff is loading me up with too much phosphorus. Please do something about that. Um, and maybe it sounds a little like juvenile to sort of think about the environment in this way, but uh, I, I see it as just like giving the environment its due, like uh, because the alternative is either managing it or ignoring it. And even if you don't necessarily buy the idea that those are like morally uh, wrong, they haven't really borne out the best results even, like even in a utilitarian sense. Um, so we need to start thinking about the environment differently. And um, I just find sort of this idea of communicating with the environment, listening to ecosystems uh, is really compelling as a way to actually bring them into the fold of uh, human life and, and bring ourselves into the sort of reconnect ourselves with uh, ecosystems and, and view ourselves as continuous. Um, I, yeah, I don't have anything else to say. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it seems like we've cut ourselves uh, we've cut ourselves off from those signals um, um, in a lot of ways that kind of favor um, discussions or conversations around technocratic solutions to environmental and ecological crises um, that continue to be exacerbated by the impacts of climate change. Um, from a planning standpoint, how do you feel about the idea of um, smart cities or strategies like geoengineering, climate engineering, et cetera? Um, do you see potential pitfalls or hazards or negative feedback loops emerging from those strategies? Um, so in general, I'm pretty skeptical of the whole smart cities concept. Um, I'm going to go on a rant on self-driving cars here for a bit, <laughs> uh, just as an example, I guess. But um, I mean, I guess the, the core of my feeling about smart cities um, or geoengineering or climate engineering um, is that we're misdiagnosing the problems that we're facing as technical problems when they're sociopolitical problems. And a sociopolitical problem requires a sociopolitical solution um, and can't be solved, at least in any meaningful sense, by a technical uh, solution. So self-driving cars, as an example, um, concern me because the last time cities in the US went all in on a new transportation technology, uh, just the automobile, the non-self-driving automobile, um, it had effects that were either unforeseen or ignored 
that still resonate to this day. And I don't really think it's far-fetched to imagine roadways or sections communities that are made inaccessible to pedestrians or people not using self-driving cars in order to accommodate the new technology. Um, because this has already happened in our communities to a greater extent than I think uh, many people realize. So, um, I mean, just as, you know, general considerations or, or concerns that I, issues that could sort of bear that sort of exclusive type of development out. And we don't know the full extent to what new infrastructure will need to be implemented or whether different manufacturers will have their own proprietary infrastructure such that even more infrastructure will need to be built and duplicated or local anomalies will form. Um, so I don't know, like maybe it's a little paranoid, but like, you know, Omaha becomes a Tesla city because we only have Tesla infrastructure for Tesla self-driving cars and then you know, Google is in Phoenix or something. It's uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility, I guess. Um, and when, far as, when cars first came onto the market, if an automobile driver hit a pedestrian, the driver was almost always considered at fault. But lobbying from the automobile industry changed things and suddenly jaywalking, a term that they came up with uh, and a term that is now commonplace, uh, became a crime that kept non-drivers out of public roads. And this seems like just normal now, but this was a huge shift in American cities at the time because like American cities, we don't have a strong tradition of public plazas and squares. Um, like, you know, you imagine a lot of European cities do. Um, well, like a lot of European cities do have. Um, and so the street was the primary shared public space in American cities going into the 20th century up until the automobile came on. Um, so all of a sudden, if you have cars dominating that space and taking priority over everybody else, you fundamentally authored like the main public space in American cities. And you can go back and look at cities uh, just photos and paintings of U.S. streets or, or cities in or streets in U.S. cities, um, where, like, even in the time of like early in the time of cars, like, you had pedestrians and horse-drawn carriages, and people were selling things and just talking and like moving about freely. Like there was a general flow of traffic, but like it was much less rigid, and that's because streets were not just understood as ways to go from point A to point B, but also as shared places for us to gather. And um, so we've already had this like massive transfer, like transformation of a public space. And that's not even to get into just the transformation of the built environment that occurred. And uh, a lot of the uh, terrible, frankly terrible things that happened uh, in, in communities, uh, specifically communities of color that were uh, bulldozed to make room for the interstate highway system. Um, and uh, the suburban sprawl that has occurred, that's something else that I don't think we grapple with very much is the automobile for people who can afford them and have one gives you the freedom to go anywhere you want in the city right now, basically. But if you don't have a car, and there's not a bus route to where you need to go, 
then all of a sudden it's like, if you want to go to the suburbs, like you're kind of out of luck. Um, it's really difficult to get out there and, and navigate around there. So like technically, like you're not prohibited from going there, like to a suburb, but if you don't have a car, like you are functionally closed off from that. And so I really don't think it is too much of a stretch to look at something like a self-driving car and just be skeptical or concerned that uh, this new technology could alter uh, our communities in, in unforeseen ways. Um, and, and so that's just my general attitude towards smart cities is like, before we go about introducing all these new technologies um, that gather a ton of data about the way our communities function or like change the way we interact with each other and the built environment, like, I don't know, I've, to the extent that it's possible, like there really needs to be due diligence done. And um, I don't know, I mean, I'm probably going to remain a skeptic on those things and uh, in the future just because history uh, has a lot to teach about the issue. Um, and so getting back to this idea of uh, technical solutions versus socio-political solutions, obviously like a problem can have like both of those dimensions present in them. But if we're talking about like climate engineering, um, so the thing that people think of, or at least that I think of initially in climate, when they hear the term climate engineering is like, well, we should just make a machine to suck the carbon out of the air or something. Uh, well, we have trees that do that, like vegetation technically does that. So like I've noticed in that there's sort of a, a hope that, well, if we just plant enough trees, then climate change all of a sudden is not an issue. Um, never mind the fact that like climate change is already in motion, the impacts are already in motion. Like we can't just plant trees and, and do nothing else, which nobody's really proposing, but uh, or at least I hope nobody's really proposing, but um, at its core, like this hope that we could just plant our way out of climate change to suck all the carbon out of the air is a technical solution. Like it's using trees, but it's basically saying we just need more of this one input and we'll get the desired outcome. And reforestation, revegetation, like uh, hedging against desertification, like to the extent that it's possible in places, like is crucial. Like that's really important. Like, yeah, I I love trees. I want more trees. Um, I want more prairies. I want more vegetarian like vegetation. You know, uh, as it's uh, uh, meant to be in an environment. I guess you know, like uh, ecologically appropriate revegetation basically. Um, but climate change is the result of our economic system and just like our whole, our whole like socio-political, like socio-economic and political system. I mean, it's, it's really uh, tied into every single facet of uh, human life and then the systems that we have. And of course, it, the culpability for it uh, is not evenly distributed and nor are the, uh, the harms. Um, and so right away, like you can't have a technical solution to 
uh, an issue so firmly grounded in, um, or that, that results, I guess, from uh, global power imbalances um, and also manifests itself um, along the lines of global power, right? Like the industrialized, like industrialized or developed countries are uh, by and large responsible for climate change, but uh, are going to be harmed less as a result of it. And you don't, like, there's not a gadget that can fix that inequality. Um, so, uh, and also like, we have to recognize that there are people and institutions that have an interest in keeping the system running as it is, even if it's leading us towards irreversible disaster. And you overcome those inequalities and those institutions um, that want things to stay the same through politics and through socio-political means, um, organizing and things like that. Um, you know, planting more trees or self-driving cars uh, are not going to change the fact that Chevron and BP don't really want things to change and haven't wanted things to change for decades, as, as we've learned. Um, so I'm not anti-technology, like I'm not a primitivist, um, but I really do worry that we are missing the point when we talk about smart cities and sort of new technology as a way to deal with the, the problems that our cities are facing. What do you think about nature-based technologies? Can you think of some examples in environmental planning of um, nature-based technologies that have uh, helped to successfully realign people's relationships um, with ecosystems um, to be more, to be based in reciprocity rather than domination? Are there examples of that happening here in Omaha? Yeah, so I guess first, like something that um, I'm just saying is like the articles that you shared as sort of citations and the questions I think are really awesome. And like, um, I forget, just the, the author, um, I think it was mentioned in like the Guardian piece that um, you included in this, like um, has identified a lot of those things. So I think it would be awesome to like share that if you haven't already um, or like include that. But I guess, um, yeah, I can only speak locally, um, sort of, I guess, <laughs> um, in my experience. Um, but I think we do have some examples. So like earlier on, I was talking about stormwater management and something that uh, the public works department in the city um, has tried to encourage more in development are things like bioswales or rain gardens to manage stormwater instead of gray infrastructure solutions. Um, gray infrastructure, it's, uh, it's, it's a very descriptive term, just refers to like uh, the color <laughs> of the air. I mean, it's, I don't know, uh, drainage basins and, you know, concrete basically, like you know, do we have to pour concrete or whatever to manage stormwater? Can we find a more nature-based solution? So, uh, wow, that was a really bad uh, <laughs> um, explanation, but um, 
the reason these types of ecosystems are being created is still to accommodate changes that result from human development, but I think they're a step in the right direction. So um, getting back to the idea of reciprocity, I don't know that creating a, a rain garden is necessarily a reciprocal act with the environment I, or, or with the ecosystem locally. I think it's certainly better than just like digging a stormwater detention basin um, and, and sort of piping that water into the sewer system. Um, but it's certainly not the end all be all. And so I think the next step is we have like these individual instances of nature-based solutions. And I think the next step towards um, having some sort of reciprocal relationship with the ecosystem would be to identify connections between them and start planning around those connections. So the provincial government of Ontario has been encouraging communities there in Canada to develop uh, what they call natural heritage maps, where they identify nodes um, where the natural ecosystem is strong. So this could be like parks or preserves or undeveloped land, um, things like that. And the way you plan in that community is then altered by the existence of those nodes as you begin to identify, um, well, as you recognize a need to connect them and then begin identifying ways to do that. So you've got, and, and the, the maps that are created are kind of cool because um, they look like transit maps. So you've got like the nodes that are the stations and then the corridors between them that are the routes and uh, on like a transit map. And I think, you know, that's, maybe that's not the, the end. I should hope it's not the end when we talk about reciprocal relationships with local ecosystems. But if we're, I think they are a way to get our foot in the door and begin to shift general understanding of how the built environment relates to local ecosystems and a way for us to um, reintegrate ourselves into uh, local ecosystems uh, and, think, and, and see ourselves and the built environment as continuous with the local ecosystem. It sounds like that's a, it sounds like that's a great beginning. Um, I wanted to ask one more question before we wrap up. And this question has to do with your own self-generated work. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you make music as Bowling by Myself, and you recently released a track called Small. Um, sort of riffing on that title, can you talk a little bit about how the idea of care influences your work and what it means to care for or about the small things? Yeah. Um, so that song, um, I started writing it last summer and I guess all, all my music is, comes from like a, a really personal place and it's really, a lot of times it's more just like a catharsis for me. Um, I tend to write lyrics when I am feeling a particular emotion very strongly and then just sort of channel that into writing. Um, and so my lyrics tend to just get spat out all at once. Um, but so that song 
I don't think I ever actually say the word small in it, um, but I was feeling when I wrote it. Um, because the, the underlying thought of it is like, I, I, about myself, didn't necessarily feel like I was uh, ready or worthy of relationships or um, because I, I didn't fully understand myself. And I still don't. I mean, like, you have your whole life to figure out who you are and then probably never do. But um, it's so, um, I guess it's coming from a place of saying, like, I, I didn't have much to offer. So in that sense, like, um, I felt small in a bad way. Um, small in the sense of that I'm unworthy. So I suppose in the intervening time, um, I personally have tried to take care of myself and, and recognize those emotions. And um, I certainly don't feel quite as small today as I did when I wrote that song. Um, so I guess on a personal level, uh, if we think about caring for small things, Sometimes if we ourselves are feeling small, it is important to take care of ourselves and um, that in turn can help you take care of other small things uh, more effectively. Um, yeah, I, uh, in general, in, in my music, I tend to focus on small things like really many things that um, I don't know if we focus on very often. I have another song that is like, it's like a, almost like a list poem where it's like, um, like the, the opening lyric is like, I'm the water vapor in a chemtrail, the last stale slice of bread in the loaf you've been meaning to pitch. And for the record, I don't think like, I'm not into the whole chemtrail conspiracy theory. I was just thinking about how, like, I wonder if chemtrail conspiracy theorists think about the water vapor in it. Like, like they're very focused on, like, whatever chemicals are in chemtrails that are controlling the minds, but, like, there's probably water vapor there. Like, do they think about that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'm really fascinated with little things that we might think about as mundane or um, not worthy of our attention because I think um, when we pay attention to those things, we find a lot to explore and um, just, I don't know, like, yeah, discover. Um, and, so that, I think that process of exploration of small things leads to uh, a care for small things. You know, if you take the time to notice them, then you want to take care of them. Um, yeah. I, I don't really care about taking care of the chemtrail conspiracy theory, theory community, but I will <laughs> uh, speculate about the minutiae of what they might talk about. 
I think that's a great place to end it. <laughs> uh, thank you again for um, thank you again for spending time talking to us, Ren. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah, always love talking to you. Thanks so much, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>